and welcome to The Weekly Skeptic, episode two. I'm Nick Dixon, and this is the audio branch of the Daily Skeptic website. We're expanding our empire, if you like, in a kind of colonial, imperialist manner. Later, I'll be joined by the editor of The Daily Skeptic, Mr. Will Jones, to get the top stories from the week in skepticism. But first, I'm here with our founder, Mr. Toby Young. And of course, it's a sad week, and we have to talk about the departure of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Toby. Yes, um, I found out about it. I was I was sitting in... I was sitting in the Woolsey and um, an elderly woman at a neighbouring table leant over and touched my arm and told me the Queen had died. And it was quite a, in a way, quite a a moving moment. Um, You know, it's not very typical for an English person to kind of touch someone else that they've never met before. Sort of thing happens abroad, I'm sure, all the time, but (laughs) doesn't happen very often in this country. And uh, and she was clearly, you know, herself, she was clearly very moved and thought it was important. It was significant. She wanted to tell someone. And um, yeah, and then I obviously, I I, I then um, started uh, looking on, looking at the news. And um, I guess, uh, like everyone, I I, I was probably uh, surprised by how affected I was by it. Um, You know, uh, even though it was expected. She'd been, you know, ailing for a bit. Um, uh, nonetheless, it was, um, it was, it was, uh, I, I found myself, you know, pretty upset by it. Um, I didn't actually cry. Um, and uh, I haven't actually been, you know, to Buckingham Palace. Um, but I did walk through Green Park yesterday and it is absolutely festooned with flowers and the crowds were, you know, already extremely big and no doubt this weekend they're going to get even bigger and on Saturday it's going to be out of control um but uh, yeah no it's it's been it's been nice to see kind of um how much she meant to so many people and seeing all the uh, I thought it was very touching the way farmers in Scotland park their tractors by the side of the road as the um coffin drove past uh, and people are lining the roads between here and Scotland um uh, to, to witness the coffin passing. It's a bit like, you know, it's a, to think of a comparable event, it's a bit like when Churchill died, I suppose, and the Dockers, you know, bowed their their, their crane, or, or, you know, the cranes to, to mark Churchill's passing. Uh, it feels like a kind of, you know, a, a, a really significant um, uh, national episode. And, um, uh, uh, and I've also been pleasantly surprised by how much, enthusiasm there appears to be for Charles as well I was slightly concerned that um, the Queen's death would prompt a kind of uh, surge in Republican sentiment Um, and people would be speculating about the future of the monarchy the union the Commonwealth Um, but actually Charles seems to have been embraced by you know lots of people and people have been spontaneously singing God Save the King and um, being very respectful when he's been out and about meeting members of the public um so you know perhaps he won't be the disaster that some of us feared um uh yeah yeah well I, well I was actually speaking to you on the phone and you you said she had died but it turned out to be fake news and then and shortly after that it was actually announced and like you I didn't cry I actually thought you were going to say then I've, I've never cried but um I didn't cry my mum admitted to crying and she is a tough woman from Lancashire who doesn't really do emotions so she was surprised how, how she felt. I was, I I had a sort of, I will admit to a sort of sharp pain in my gut, a, a feeling of grief, you know, that I think Boris Johnson put it very well. He said, we, we were surprised by the intensity of feeling. I think a lot of people did feel like that. And I recalled immediately being a, a young child and a whole school lining up along the pavement 
to catch a glimpse of the Queen who was driving by in Ambleside. And uh, we all had our little Union Jack flags. And it was just a, it was just a huge thing, even though we caught a glimpse of her like a second. And, and she's been there our entire lives and almost my parents' entire lives. So that's the extraordinary thing. Yeah, and I think people... People, there has been obviously huge outpouring of grief and all that, but and not from all quarters, unfortunately. We've also seen the sort of horrific side of of Twitter and of the other side of this argument. I mean, if it was the 80s or 90s or even early 2000s, we'd have probably just heard a sort of uniform, patriotic, traditional stance. But now we've had all these people. Uju Anja was the worst one on Twitter. I don't even know if I want to read her tweet, but she, she, she wrote an absolutely disgusting tweet about the Queen. And there was a lot of this online, and it was fascinating to me to see who is against the Queen. So there was a kind of patriotic groundswell, but then there was also the the pronoun people, the leftists who hate the Queen on some sort of colonial, half-baked colonial ground. They're kind of race-obsessive types who, and they're often the same people, but some focus more on this racial aspect. Then there are sort of the Republicans. Some of them are quite polite. Some of them are not. And then there's a kind of the, the sort of libs, the sort of post-Blairite libs who just say things like, oh, I don't really mind the Queen. But they're, and they're annoyed about the football being cancelled, which we'll get onto later. But um, what was your impression of these quite horrible tweets anti the Queen? Yeah, um, well, not surprised, obviously. Um, the woke left have never been, you know, um, ones to pass up an opportunity to um, uh, advertise their virtue, um, uh, even though they do express it in very peculiar ways. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess... Um, I was quite surprised that the New York Times, you know, um, the so-called um, paper of record, the Grey Lady, supposed to be this very distinguished, respectable mouthpiece of the American establishment, should have run um, such a critical piece about the Queen and her reign and colonialism, um, uh, you know, within hours of her dying. But then the New York Times does seem to have this kind of peculiar vendetta against Britain, something we actually wrote about on the... Um, Daily Skeptic last week. Um, I, I guess one thing I feared um, would happen when the Queen died, it would sort of mark the end of um, uh, an era for those of us who care about British public life, who share some of the Queen's values, who believe in public service, patriotism, self-sacrifice, modesty, doing your duty, that all those things, those values, that tradition would 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 end with the queen's death it wouldn't be sustained by the succession and you know after her the deluge and so you sort of got a glimpse of that beginning to happen with all this kind of all these horrible tweets kind of emerging but actually the reaction to them was quite encouraging you know most people condemned them um uh, there weren't nearly as many as I was expecting, you know, I was expecting people to kind of use her death as an excuse to talk about the British Empire and colonialism and the alleged racism of the royal family. And there was a bit of that, but not as much as there might have been. And it was shut down quite quickly. So, you know, um, uh, the, the professor you mentioned earlier at Carnegie Mellon University, I think she's now I think she's been she's been suspended. Um, uh, and is under investigation, um, but um, so that, that you know, uh, there were there were this kind of predictable carping from people who just couldn't wait to kind of use it as an opportunity to bash Britain, um, but probably not as much as I was expecting. And it, 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 the reaction was quite encouraging, I thought, generally. Yeah, that New York Times piece, in case the listeners don't know, about an hour after the Queen's death was announced, they posted: "We should not romanticize her era." 
the Queen helped obscure a bloody history of decolonization or decolonization, sorry, whose proportions and legacies have yet to be adequately acknowledged. I mean, this is an hour after the, the death was announced, woefully misjudged from the New York Times. The BBC apparently were going on about colonialism. I don't listen to it. Radio 4, so I, I don't know about that. But apparently they did the same. Sky started banging on about the post boxes in about 10 minutes. So they, they, they all got it horribly wrong. But like you say, there was this other side to it. The, the one that got it really wrong and the one that really highlighted this to me was uh, Trevor Sinclair because he put this tweet out. And of course, he is just a, an ex-footballer. He's not a diplomat, but he wrote, racism was outlawed in England in the 60s and it's been allowed to thrive. So why should black and brown mourn? Two exclamation marks, hashtag queen. So this one, he obviously got absolutely hammered for this. It was bizarre. It was terrible timing. It was, it was a terrible tweet regardless of timing. And this is the racial angle I was talking about. And it was what he underestimated was the feeling for the queen and, and perhaps the perhaps the so-called silent majority or whatever you want to call them, the people who stay quiet most of the time. There are a few things that are still sacred. And when it comes to the queen, people will speak up. And I just wonder, why did he even think that was a good idea? I just wonder if we're in this lefty world. We've got Twitter, which is awful, is cesspit, as people often call it. And he, maybe he's just used to a, a world where you can just say these horrendous leftist horrible things and there's no blowback but when it comes to the queen people are like not today yeah i mean all i can imagine is that he was hoping for likes and retweets and thought this would be you know a topical moment to 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 talk about his um concerns about you know persistent racism i mean it was very odd um that he should have chosen that of all moments to kind of say that and, and i guess people who want to kind of connect the queen with racism and um the legacy the violent legacy of decolonization i mean they've got a couple of problems i mean the first problem is you know it's as though they don't haven't quite grasped what a constitutional monarchy is i mean she isn't she, she may be the head of state but that doesn't mean that she's responsible for you know um uh, uh, what happened in Kenya in the 1960s. Um, uh, you know, um, she just does what her prime ministers tell her to do. Uh, so it seems a bit much to kind of actually hold her directly responsible for the kind of, you know, um, uh, episodes that occurred, you know, um, in our colonial territories during her reign. But more importantly, you know, um, we've divested, our, in, in, the, in the last 70 years, Britain has divested itself of nearly all its colonies. Um, the empire has become the Commonwealth. That is a voluntary association. Um, and, uh, and, and almost every, if not every Commonwealth leader, um, uh, was very respectful. Um, uh, you know, there's a national day of mourning that's been declared in India. Um, uh, Jacinda Ardern, you know, said that, uh, she wasn't going to use the Queen's death as an opportunity to kind of resurrect any calls for republicanism. The Queen's still very popular in Canada. Um, so, you know, it seemed just like very tin-eared of people like Trevor Sinclair to um, uh, try and kind of uh, start talking about racism, you know, on the occasion of the Queen's death. I was particularly disappointed by that because he is, of course, a QPR legend um, and I'm yes. a QPR supporter. And, and there was some debate amongst, you know, on QPR Twitter as to whether he should be kicked out now uh, of the club of QPR legends. But I, I don't think he will be. Yeah, he's a QPR legend. I was going to say that. And he's also a bit of a legend for pointing out that the footballers were collapsing. He's one of the few people that dared say, why are all these footballers collapsing? So he's a bit of a, a vaccine skeptic legend in that sense, maybe too conspiratorial for some, but he, he did at least raise that. But now 
I wonder, I don't know what the current status is. Someone said he took talk TV off his status. The question is, should he be sacked? I mean, he did this. I know it's a, it's a tricky question for the for free speech types because he did this uh, poor apology. He said, my tweet yesterday was ill-timed at a time when the royal family and many around the world were grieving for the queen. I apologize for any offense caused to those mourning the queen. It's like, it wasn't really the timing, Trevor. It was basically everything. It was everything you did. And then he did the classic mental health uh, get out clause. He wrote, it's not how many times you get knocked down. It's finding the strength to get back up and go again. Praying hands emoji, hashtag mental health awareness. And um, <laughs> and at that point, I stopped mentioning him because I, I tweeted about it a couple of times because I've been piled on on Twitter. Obviously, you have, Toby. And it is imp- the funny thing there is it will impact his mental health. He is using a ridiculous, pathetic get out to, for this awful thing he's done. At the same time, of course, his mental health will be damaged by this. There's no doubt. So, so for me, I was too soft-hearted to, to pile on him then. But many piled on and said, come off it, mate. You just said something awful. And I suppose the question is, what should happen? Because I was thinking about this, and I don't have a good answer yet. We're obviously against cancel culture. But is there a time when it's just an old-fashioned... Imagine pre-Twitter, if someone showed such poor judgment and had showed their politics to be, let's say you ran the station and his politics were so against yours and his judgment was so poor, would you just think, do I want that person at my station? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think he should lose his livelihood as a result of, um, you know, having written that tweet. Um, I mean, often at the Free Speech Union, we have to kind of um, try and distinguish between, you know, a Twitter pile-on, which may look orchestrated um but it's actually just lots of people reacting spontaneously at the same time to something offensive or controversial someone said i think when it would and you know that we wouldn't we wouldn't want to kind of leap to the defense of someone at the bottom of a pile on of that nature it's when people start demanding that the person in question loses their livelihood that they should suffer you know that kind of consequence for saying something unfashionable or unorthodox or offensive or outrageous that's when i think it crosses the line and i and i wouldn't want trevor sinclair to lose his job as a result of this and i hope that talk radio doesn't sack him um and you know i think if he's his apology was quite poor i agree um but you know he he should i'd give him another chance and let him come on back onto his show on talk radio and um and and try again um with the apology i'm sure he can do better i mean yeah to claim that it's sort of uh, it's all about how how you can get back up after being knocked down. The impre- implication was that he shouldn't have been knocked down. It was unjust for him to have been knocked down. I mean, he deserved to be knocked down, but he also deserves to get back up again. But uh, yeah, so I, 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 I'm willing to forgive him, but uh, I hope he does slightly better with, the, with this next apology on air. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I work in media, and people have been sacked for a lot less, and that, but then again, I don't want to see them be sacked. So yeah, I think I think that is correct. It was a terrible tweet, but we, we don't need to take someone's livelihood, as you say. It was also it was quite a strange week for footballers in, in general. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, the GOAT to some people, or unless you think it's Messi, um, posted a photo with Jordan Peterson, which was interesting. Dr. Jordan Peterson, just a picture saying something like, thanks, mate. I can't remember the exact caption. And um, and everyone in the football, not everyone, but some people went mad in, in the football world and on Twitter just saying, Oh, this is it for me. I, I, I can't. I, you know, I, this proves that Ronaldo's bad or whatever nonsense. I thought that was a bit, a bit silly. Whereas Peterson, of course, just sees him as someone who's, you know, very high in the competence hierarchy or whatever he would say about it. Yeah, I saw that. That was it. Was it was great that uh, Ronaldo was um, 
willing to um, associate himself publicly with Jordan Peterson, um, you know, and, and maybe he didn't realize that Jordan Peterson is a kind of polarizing, controversial figure, um, much beloved by people like us, but not people on the other side. Um, uh, so um, maybe he wasn't he wasn't taking as big a risk as he realized, um, or not deliberately anyway. Um, uh, but uh, maybe he maybe he did realize it. I mean, he's, he, you know, uh, and he he was just decided to 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 you know to to brave the reaction. Anyway, I thought it was great, um, and it's 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 uh, definitely enhanced. Ronaldo in my eyes, but listen. Well, we're, well, we're and, and, and oh, when I was looking at that tweet, I was wondering where it was taken um, because I think Jordan Peterson was speaking in Manchester earlier in the week or towards the end of last week, or maybe at the weekend. Anyway, and, and it, it, roughly about the same time. And I thought, did he go to Ronaldo's house while he was up there? And was that kind of baronial kind of backdrop? Is that actually? where Ronaldo lives or was it where, you know, was it the hotel that Jordan Peterson was staying? And it was sort of quite, quite hard to figure out exactly where they'd met and whether they really were, just what good friends they are. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'm not, I'm not thought about the, the house question. I do think about the, the controversy Ronaldo probably doesn't even care because he's, I don't think he took the vaccine. He's, he's had some controversial times. I don't think Ronaldo cares what anyone says. I think he's at that status where, you know what I mean? He can just do anything. He can have a photo with anyone. I don't know if he stays up watching Jordan Peterson, binging Peterson videos on YouTube or stuff like that. I'd like to see that. But um, what was actually far more controversial was um, Lucas Moura. I don't know if you saw the Spurs player who should have played in the final of the Champions League, scored a hat-trick in the semi-final. Sorry if you're not a football fan, but he got dropped for the final and replaced by Harry Kane. Turns out to be a bit of a legend. He said, I'm a right-wing conservative. I follow Christian and family principles. I don't see a perfect presidential candidate, but I can't deny that Bolsonaro is the closest to what I believe. And he went on to say that left-wing ideology, socialism, and even communism, which is nothing but Nazism. So he said that they're basically the same. I mean, that's pretty based from Mora. Yeah, that was that was quite surprising. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe if you've been following Mora on Twitter or Instagram for years, then it's not surprising. But I hadn't realized that he was you know, a Bolsonaro fan. Um, and that is pretty unusual. Um, but yeah, no, it's good to see that, uh, you know, you imagine, because, you know, the footballing authorities are so unrelentingly woke and politically correct about everything, uh, seemingly to kind of counter, you know, the, the imaginary kind of far right impulses of um, football fans um, uh, it was good you know it, it, because of that you sort of naturally assume that footballers sort of you know fall into the same brackets and they all think of themselves as you know uh, as having to be these kind of progressive role models for kind of the, all the toxic young men that follow football um, so it was, it's great when you know when footballers um, actually turn out to be quite independent-minded and their own people and not necessarily beholden to this kind of progressive mumbo-jumbo that's pumped out constantly by the footballing authorities. Yeah, but I think, Paul's, I think um, sorry, Moore is going to sort of get away with it, it feels like, partly just because he's Brazilian, I think, and people are just not that focused on it. He probably said it in Portuguese. People are not that, you know, you see, I think he's just going to get away with it, whereas if this was an English player doing something equivalent, mm. it would be a huge story. Even if they came out for Trump or something, it'd be a huge story. Yeah, they'd probably be dropped from the England squad, wouldn't they? I um, imagine. I mean, especially by Woke Southgate. There was that um, yeah. example recently when the, the guy refused to do, what did he do? refused to wear the rainbow shirt, I think, it was the the, uh, the the player. And then he was he was in all sorts of trouble, wasn't he? Do you remember that one? That no, was just for refusing. Oh, yeah. Well, I should have checked it before. But it was a, there, was a, there was a player who refused to wear, he refused to go along with the sort of rainbow agenda so I, it, 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 of course when it, when it, whenever that um 
I always, you know, as often as possible, um, like to point out that in spite of the insistence on flying pride flags, wearing rainbow laces, you know, um, the England football team will shortly be going to Qatar where uh, uh, to, to compete in the World Cup, where, of course, homosexuality is still punishable by death in some circumstances and which still has, um, you know, a significant slavery problem. Though I did, I did read a travel piece about Qatar uh, in The Telegraph this week, which said that there is a museum of slavery in what Doha, uh, is that the capital of Qatar? Um, and uh, apparently, it's um, it's it's very good, you know. Um, but whether it actually um, it didn't actually didn't reveal whether it um, deals with the current slavery problem in Qatar. But yeah, it looks like these these supposedly BLM supporting England footballers are going to be playing in the World Cup in stadiums built by modern day slaves. Yeah, I've actually done gigs in in Doha. Didn't didn't stop by the slavery museum, but didn't have time. But um, just just to confirm the other story, yeah, it was Adrissa Gay, the Paris Saint Germain player who refused to wear a rainbow shirt on, on religious grounds. Yeah, he was in massive trouble. But um, the other one, uh, and there was one more. I think it was was that one more football related thing. I think we were, we were going to talk about um whether we thought it was right to cancel football um uh, because oh, yeah. of the Queen's death. Because you wrote an article about this in the Daily Skeptic, which people can check out, and it was called something like "I'm outraged that QPR is cancelled." I'm paraphrasing, but um, and I'm going to explain actually, Toby, why why you're wrong. But maybe I should. I, I think you're wrong-ish, but I, I think maybe you should go for. I mean, I'll just say my view very briefly, which is that of course, if the cricket and rugby are going ahead, then the football should go ahead. However, where I think you missed it slightly is that you sounded a bit like the London Libs, and maybe that's what you are. But people like. The people I know in North London, they were just annoyed that the football wasn't on. And they said, they said a couple of people in my football group who I play five aside said, I don't mind the Queen, but blah, 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 blah. These are the kind of people they don't mind. These are the kind of post Blairite citizens of anywhere. They believe in nothing. They don't get the significance of this. They see it as an old woman who's had a good innings. They see it as like your gran, but it's not. It's more significant than that, obviously. And to me, they don't quite get it. So while I wanted to watch Man United versus Crystal Palace as much as the next man, you wanted to watch QPR. There's an argument for the minute silence and the singing of the anthem and for things to go ahead. But I also think there's a danger of these our modern modern man, the post-Blairite man who believes in nothing, not getting the gravity of the occasion. Yeah, well, my argument, um, I don't think, was contingent on thinking it, it's not a very significant occasion and shouldn't be marked by any national mourning and we should just carry on as normal. Um, my argument was that... Um, I wanted an opportunity to, you know, mourn collectively. There's something quite significant and meaningful about mourning with other people. I mean, that's why we go to funerals to mark the deaths of our loved ones. Um, and I like the idea of being in the stadium and observing a minute's silence a few days after her death um, and then spontaneously singing the national anthem, which is what happened. Um, at the West Ham Europa Conference League game the day after, if not the day she died. Um, uh, and not only would that have been kind of meaningful to me and a, and a meaningful way of marking her passing um, and a memorable way of doing it too, um, it would have been a memorable way for my children um, to mark that occasion as well. I mean, for them, and I was going to go to the match, you know, with my four kids, um, uh, the match that was cancelled at the weekend, QPR Huddersfield at home. Um, and I'm not sure that they will have anything they can kind of 
look back on as a kind of significant event where they marked the passing of the Queen. I mean, of course, they'll have a day off school on Monday because of the funeral. Um, but, um, you know, they're not actually going to go to the funeral. They're not going to kind of go out and sort of uh, go down to Westminster and watch the kind of cortege going past or anything like that. So for them, that would have been an opportunity, something to remember, something to tell their own kids about. And in the absence of that, it feels like, you know, there isn't a way for us as a family to kind of show our respect to the Queen. And that would have been an opportunity to do so. Yeah, well, you, you've made a case. I'm not so strongly... I mean, I wanted to watch the football. Yes, it would have been good to mark the occasion like that. I'm not... I don't feel strong enough about it either way to, to, to really argue against you. But that was my only concern that you reminded me of my London Lib associates. And uh, but I suppose your, your argument's a bit more nuanced. Perhaps theirs was, to be fair. Perhaps I'm being unfair. So we've got the question of the arrest around the protests. Uh, but I wonder if we should do our advert first. Now, what do you think? Let's do our ad. That's a good idea. Because we've we've got our first advert, everyone. It's very, very exciting times. Um, already, episode two, we don't mess about. And uh, I'll just, I'll read it now. And this is about a book that you should all go and get. So if you've found the world a depressing and dystopian place in recent years, perhaps now is the time for a therapeutic laugh. The new COVID spoof, busting anti-vax myths, seriously expert arguments for the COVID deniers in your life is now available on Amazon. Its supposed author is the fictitious Professor Osin McCamardoom, which means Osin's son of stupid in the Irish language, a man who is a mix of all the worst COVID experts we have had to suffer in recent times. For him, the vaccine is definitely a vaccine because it self-identifies as one and it's vaccine-phobic to suggest otherwise. Sweden's no-lockdown approach was nothing other than the sad descent of a former liberal utopia into a far-right nightmare. And the Great Reset will leave us all utterly delirious with joy by 2030. Laughter is an excellent antidote to tyranny, and this satire will put a smile back even on the most jaded face to get your copy, head to Amazon now. Links are in the show notes. And I'll also give a free extra mention. You could just go to Amazon and search busting anti-vax myths, seriously expert arguments for the COVID deniers in your life. And you did send me how to pronounce the name, but I forgot. So I may have got it completely wrong. Yeah, he sent a, a, a little video, record, a little recording of how to pronounce the name. I think. And I you learned it, it I... but then that was about a week ago and I may have forgotten it. So apologies if I got that wrong, but... <laughs> I, but I've read the ad. I think we've I think we've smashed it really. So if you want to advertise, get in touch. What what we do, Toby, directly? Yeah, um, yep. Uh, if you want if you want to advertise on this podcast, then um, send an email to lockdownskeptics at gmail And just to be clear about that, that I mean, I don't know if it, I think it was clear enough in, in what you just said. But just to be doubly clear, um, the author of that book is obviously a fictitious character invented to send up all the pompous, self-appointed COVID experts that emerged during the pandemic to tell us to remain under our beds um, for several years. Anyway, um, it, it, it look, I've had a quick look at it. It looks very funny indeed, so definitely worth checking out. All right, so now let's join our editor, Will Jones, to give us the top five stories from the week in scepticism. And number one, I believe, is about David Attenborough. He's up to his old tricks again, talking about Arctic ice. That's right, Nick. Uh, David Attenborough was was back on the BBC with his Frozen Planet 2. And uh, as usual, there was some dubious climate change claims. Uh, the, the, most, the most standout for our uh, environment editor, Chris Morrison, was that uh, he claimed that the Arctic summer sea ice uh, was, would be gone uh, 
uh, within 12 years, he said. This came as a bit of a, a bit of a shock to Chris Morrison because uh, the, the, the data, this is the official data, this isn't the, this isn't the skeptic data, this is the normal data that uh, shows that the Arctic summer sea ice has actually been increasing in the last 10 years. It, got, it hit a low point in 2012, but in the last 10 years, it's, it's, been, it's been increasing year on year and is now on its way up. So the idea that it'll be gone in, uh, in, in 12 years, well, it's going in the wrong direction for that. So uh, we're not quite sure where David Attenborough got his information on that. Uh, presumably some kind of, some kind of model that, that makes up the outcome that it wants. I don't believe Attenborough would ever lie to us. Um, and another big story this week was the return of the lockdown zealots. They're back. It feels like they never went away, but they're back. Well, there's been a bit of a narrative shift in the last uh, in the last few weeks, hasn't there? With uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, and and then Grant Shapps all coming out and saying, "Ah, oh, well, I wasn't really that enthusiastic about lockdowns. I don't think I'd do it again." Um, and so, and so, there's been a bit of a shift, and it was really good to see that with that, there was no, no politicians were were pushing back. Uh, that I that I heard to say, well, actually, I'm a lockdown skeptic, and uh, and arguing with them, but that but they 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 largely let let the narrative change. So that was that was de- that was definitely encouraging. But then, following on from that, a number of publications, uh, including the Times and Nature and uh, and the I newspaper as well, uh, published uh, some pretty some pretty hardcore lockdown. Uh, pro-lockdown pieces from journalists. And we also had Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings, two of Boris's old uh, number 10 team, uh, putting out some some real uh, pro-lockdown true believer stuff. And I took I took a look at that because they just they just make you know Tom Chivers, for example, in the in in the eye just makes some really some really bizarre obviously untrue claims he claims for example that in sweden although they didn't have a lockdown they locked themselves down and were and he, and he literally says they were cowering from the disease in their homes so it didn't matter that we didn't lock down and th- and this is crazy because there's there's photographs that um that show uh, that went around the world at the time so he should have known that showing that stockholm and other parts of sweden uh, were, were were perfectly normal and the data backs that up and we see them going out to shops we see them do it going to restaurants and the and the google mobility data shows the same thing that their their drop was not anywhere near ours it was theirs was more like 15 percent, and ours was like 70 percent. so it's just it's just nonsense and and all their claims uh, claims like that based on fantasy modeling and um and all of all of the usual tricks uh so so yeah there, there, there's been a bit of a pushback and so it, it shows that we need to uh, uh we need to keep on our toes because they're, they're still there and actually in some countries the the winds uh are, haven't been blowing against uh, against the lot the pro lockdowners and in places like uh, germany and canada you really see them they're preparing to ramp up for almost a normalization of lockdowns in the winter um whether for covid or for flu so so yeah we really need to need to keep to keep on with that keep presenting the data yeah, I find it laughable the idea that Sweden were cowering. Uh, they're out partying, as I recall. And I, I always said it's it's amazing that everyone wanted to be locked down, but Sweden is the only country that didn't have Stockholm syndrome. That's my little joke. And I did notice even Jacinda Ardern has said it's optional to wear masks now. So finally, even she's easing up. But we have three stories I think about the vaccine this week. It's not going anywhere. And there was one about students. Apparently, they're having an even worse time than everyone else. Yeah, well, it's not that they're having a much worse, a much worse time than everyone else. It's the, the, the new, a new studies come out, which are some described as paradigm changing. It's, um, and that's because it's not the, the usual suspects. It's, it's been brought out by, by scientists from Harvard and Johns Hopkins University, uh, people with grant funded by the Wellcome Trust. So these are, these are, you know, these are expect to be pro narrative. And yet here are these scientists and they brought out this study, uh, which is currently in preprint, uh, not yet peer reviewed. 
um, that says that they crunch the numbers and they find that students, so people of student age, people at between age between 18 and 30, are, are nearly 100 times, uh, 98 times more likely to be injured by, seriously injured by the vaccine, one of the COVID vaccines, uh, than, uh, than they are to be prevented from going to hospital by it, up to 98 times, which is just incredible. And, and it just shows that the cost-benefit ratio for stu- people of that age, young adults, um, is just nowhere near good enough. And they, and they describe the, the mandates, because in America, they have a, have a particular problem with uh, universities imposing vaccine mandates on their students. And, uh, and, and they describe this as, as obviously unethical uh, and, and don't mince their words at all. So, yeah, so hopefully it'll get peer-reviewed and we'll see that in, in a, a top journal. And, and hopefully it'll, it'll help to shift the, the narrative against imposing these uh, these vaccines on people who don't want them. And there was another study from the NEJM, which I believe is the New England Journal of Medicine, because you just told me a minute ago. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. What was that study about? So this was so this this is published uh, peer reviewed um, in the NEJM, which is the top medical journal in the world. Uh, so really prestigious, and and it's a study of all the children in North Carolina all the infections they've had since the beginning of the pandemic and all the vaccines they've had to look at the effect on how long the vaccine lasts, but also how long the, the natural immunity lasts. And it found that and it found that natural immunity was better uh, and longer lasting than vaccine. It found that the vaccine effectiveness, prevention of infections, declined very quickly to zero and even going into sharply into negative territory within uh, within a few months, within about five months. So that, that negative means that the, the vaccinated are more likely to be infected uh, than the unvaccinated, which is the opposite of what you want. Which that's shocking enough, but what what was particularly shocking was that they looked at the those about they looked at the natural immunity of the vaccinated and compared compared to the natural immunity of the unvaccinated. That's the immunity protection you get from your previous infection, and they found that the vaccinated that their natural immunity was completely destroyed. Basically, it was erased by the vaccine. So when the those who previously infected and vaccinated uh, lost their immunity. Uh, and went into negative territory just as quick as the vaccinated who hadn't been previously infected, whereas the unvaccinated um, who'd been previously infected, who had natural immunity, their protection lasted uh, as you would as you would expect. It waned, yeah, it waned, but it was still definitely positive after uh, 18 months against the earlier pre-Omicron variants. So um, shocking finding. It's amazing that's been published. Um, and, and it raises some serious questions about the effect of the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, these are mRNA vaccines in particular, Pfizer vaccine and Moderna, the effect of them on the on the immune system more generally. It's shocking. I was chatting to someone last night about whether it would all be recalled and someone was regretting having taken them, but maybe I shouldn't reveal who. But do we have one more about the medical crisis declaration? I'm not quite as familiar with this one as I am with the NEJM, but um, we have one more. Uh, that's right. Yes, and some uh, doctors and scientists and professionals got together, starting in um, in India, uh, and made a declaration of an international medical crisis. They've looked at the st- statistics on excess deaths. They've looked at the statistics on the uh, serious side effects of the vaccines, as reported to government reporting systems and surveys. And they've said, and the and these are doctors and medics and um, and others, and they've said this is this is a, a serious crisis that uh, needs to be properly investigated 
and um, and in the meantime, the vaccinations need to be suspended. So on the day it launched on Saturday, there were 400 signatures. Um, that's now up to uh, how many days later is it? It's uh, Tuesday, three days later. It's now up to seven thousand, which is great. They um, they say they verify they verify everyone and they ask for their medical license number and, and details about them. So that's great. So we've got some reliability. There's some fake ones slipping through. Someone sent me a, a little screenshot uh, that Harold Shipman had signed. Um, and Dr. Abdominal, um, so they need they need to get a bit hotter on their uh, on their verification. Clearly, not every name on there is genuine, but I think we can be pretty confident that a large proportion um, of them are. I'm sure that'll be used um, to to try to discredit it, but um, that's uh, that would be unfair because they are they're trying to verify it, and I'm sure the vast majority of those seven thousand names are um, are genuine. Well, I, I happen to know Dr. Abdominal, and I'm. I'm disappointed you'd smear his good name. But um, all right, that's our roundup from our editor, Will Jones. Thanks, Will. And we'll catch up with you again next week. And you can read those stories, of course, in more detail. Well, read them rather than hear them, depending on your preferred medium, on dailyskeptic.org. I'll definitely be checking out that Atomer one because I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. This is Toby Young, founder of The Daily Skeptic. Uh, We rely almost entirely on voluntary donations to make all this work to employ all the people we do uh, to bring you all this information. Um, We get very few ads. um, So please do donate. Go to www.dailyskeptic.org. Hit the donor box button on the homepage. Whatever you can afford, every little helps. And if you want to comment regularly below the line, um, if you you donate at least £5 a month, you'll be able to do that, or £50 a year. Um, Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for reading The Daily Skeptic. So let's get on to the the arrests. And this is interesting for me because Ash Saka tweeted, I'm sure the free speech defenders at GB News will be all over this any second. And this was the woman who was arrested for holding an abolished monarchy sign. And of course, Ash's implication there was that we won't touch this because we're GB and we're just, we just all believe in treason laws. And, um, absolutely bizarre, <laughs> inaccurate caricature of GB News. I doubt there's anyone there that thought this person should be arrested. They're basically all libs on the channel, guys. Hate to tell you. I sometimes think I'm the only person that could even be called conservative on there. But perhaps you may disagree, but it's basically a liberal channel. Everyone believes in free speech. I'm actually going to have to start believing in strict treason laws just to provide balance because I'm going full <laughs> reactionary. I'm going absolute monarchy, not even constitutional. I'm going all the way back. And I, I now think this person should be basically thrown in the Tower of London or whatever we, wherever we do. But Ash was, was, was saying that no one's going to defend this. Obviously absurd, but what, what was your take on this, Toby? Yeah, the, the Free Speech Union, um, that is a, that's almost a, it's, it's become almost a meme on Twitter every time someone sort of faintly left of centre um, uh, is, is um, punished for exercising their right to free speech. Almost, you can guarantee there'll be about 20 tweets from different people on the left saying, I'm sure the Free Speech Union will be all over this one, LOL. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, uh, but actually, we, we did come to the defence of this um, woman who was arrested in Edinburgh, I think it was. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and we've said, you know, um, if she gets in touch with us, we'd be happy to assist her. I don't think she should have been arrested. Um, uh, now, um, Curiously, in, in, even though she's been arrested and charged, and that's been reported, um, she um, she may not be prosecuted. So um, the way things work in Scotland, the police arrest you, they charge you, you then appear in court, but you don't discover until you appear in court when you breached a public order offence like this, um, whether or not you're going to be 
prosecuted. I very much doubt that this woman will be prosecuted, or indeed if any of the people um, arrested or moved on um, as a result of these anti-monarchist process uh, protests will be arrested. I also will be will be prosecuted. But nonetheless, I don't think I don't think they should be arrested either. And um, if any of them are listening to this podcast, um, please do get in touch with the Free Speech Union at help at freespeechunion.org, and we'll provide you with every assistance. What do you think, Nick? Do you think that you, you think she should be? You think she should be in a tower? I think the tower, but I'm going to stick with my free speech position just to win this debate with Ash Saka. And then from now on, after that, I'm moving to a more uh, strict stance about treason and no no anti-monarchy words allowed. But um, I'd love if someone just tweeted, I'd love to see the free speech union on this one. Then you like sent a link to your court impending court case. Because what I did, this person said, I'd love to, someone said, well, someone replied to Ash Saka and said, well, Nick Dixon, Leo Kirsten, and Andrew Doyle won't agree with this. And we all replied and said, no, we obviously don't. Uh, she was because she replied, Lo- "I'd love to hear from them." Then we all replied, "That didn't really seem to do anything <laughs> because, of course, they don't really want to hear from us." Of course, it's a straw man. It's playing to their little gallery. It's all nonsense. But yeah, I've gone very, very uh, royalist, Toby. I've gone all the way back. I mean, you made a, a, a point before that actually the Queen, to paraphrase you, has kind of presided over the managed decline of the of the of the empire and, and the Commonwealth and. I actually saw some more sort of right-leaning people on Twitter, on YouTube pointing this out. They were annoyed with her because she's the queen that managed the end of the empire. So you don't hear that take very much. But I wonder how, how moving on to Charles, King Charles III, perhaps our final topic, how, how he's going to manage this. I, I was actually encouraged by his, his statement to the nation, his address to the nation. And I'm willing to put aside all the previous... Perhaps I'm naive, but I'm willing to put aside all the previous stuff about the global Marshall Plan for the climate, which is obviously terrifying. Now I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he will take on this duty and he will actually renounce all that and, and, and take it seriously as a king. And I was pleased that he asserted his Christianity. I know the listeners may well not be conservatives or Christians, but I was pleased that he asserted his Christianity. He did also make a reference to multiple faiths, so he tried to do both, but it was pretty Christian. And he also, and he also, in the oath, referenced the true Protestant religion in reference to Scotland, which was quite controversial. People wondered for years if he would do that. So he stayed pretty based when it came to sorry Catholics, but he stayed pretty based when it came to the Christian part. And obviously, he tried to do something about multiple faiths as well. And he got a Shakespeare reference in. What do you think to King Charles III, and what do you think to to his what he's done so far? Yeah, well, like you, I was worried. And still, I'm worried that um, his uh, embrace of the green agenda um, uh, isn't something he'll drop now that he's become the king. Um, I mean, I think you know, um, in the past, he's felt that was a relatively safe issue to make his own because it wasn't particularly politically contentious. You know, all three of our main political parties uh, seem to agree on the net zero agenda. Um, but I think with um, you know, the uh, rising energy prices, um, Liz Truss having said that, you know, under the right circumstances, she'll lift the fracking ban. She's ordered a review, not of whether or not net zero is a good idea, but the manner in which we're going about reducing carbon emissions to zero, net zero by 2050. So there does seem to be some resiling on her predecessor's commitment um, to the net zero policy and to the green agenda. And so it's becoming a bit more politically contentious. So the prudent thing to do, I think, for Charles uh, would be to drop this now 
um, uh, because, you know, the monarchy's authority depends upon him not getting involved and not taking sides on these politically contentious issues. I mean, I, for one, would feel quite alienated if he becomes a kind of net zero king. Um, uh, but um, uh, so hopefully he can he can you know, shut up about that. Um, I mean, I, it, one bad sign, Nick, was that um, at the uh, Rwanda Commonwealth Conference um, in August, um, he apologised to the Commonwealth leaders um, for Britain's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. And one worry I have is that um, Charles will embrace this kind of decolonization agenda and think that in order to uh, renew and restore the monarchy. And what, what, what will be different about his reign is that he will detoxify it in some way. He'll, he'll acknowledge and apologize for the crown's involvement in the British Empire and in the slave trade. Um, uh, uh, in the hope that that will, you know, um, uh, uh, win over some of the monarchy's critics and make it more somehow more relevant that it needs to be morally cleansed and purified in that way and my my and i don't think it will have that effect i think that you know uh as we know from having looked after lots of people who've tried to kind of placate woke mobs by apologizing to them it just they just get more and more frenzied blood in the water they go nuts um uh, and it doesn't seem to calm them down or placate them at all and my fear is that far from he won't succeed in placating the monarchy's critics by embarking on a kind of apology tour of the Commonwealth. He'll just succeed in alienating people like you and me, who would otherwise be, you know, his staunchest defenders. Yeah, uh, that would be one of my concerns. I mean, I I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. He said in the course of the last 70 years, we've seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. Pretty much has to say that, fairly generic. But he did say our values have remained and must remain constant. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England, the church in which my faith is so deeply rooted. And I, I believe that he is a sincere Christian. I said this on GB News last night and some questioned me, but I, I do believe he is. And then, But he did say with reference to William and Catherine, he said, he said that they're helping to bring the marginal to the centre ground where vital help will be given. That did sound a bit woke. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um and of course, he's got the issue of Harry and, and Meghan to deal with. So yeah, that would be my concern that you can't appease the, these wokesters. And I did wonder: do you think this is, do you think this is overall a new upswell of, of patriotism that off the back of the well, that won't sound crass off the back of the, the death of the of the Queen? Perhaps there will be a sort of rallying behind our values and patriotism and tradition, or is it the kind of last gasp of of, of England or Britain as we've known it, and that's kind of it now? And we're going to get into this new woke world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you can sort of imagine um, the death of the Queen marking, you know, uh, the beginning of the end for everything we care about. I mean, not just the values she embodied, but also the Union, the Commonwealth, um, uh, you know, Keir Starmer will win the next general election. Um, Britain will just, he'll just, you know, never stop apologising for our past, our history. Um, so, you know, it's possible that, that the Queen was this kind of great bulwark against the kind of incoming woke tide. And now she's gone. It's just going to be, you know, a flood. Um, but um, I think it's too early to say that that's my fear. But um, uh, so far, you know, the indications are that it won't be. And um, uh, Charles will be a good king. And um, uh, and hopefully um, we, he, can, he can do as good a job keeping the 
woke tide at bay as she did. But I think it remains to be seen. Yes, and my hope is also for William. I think he he is too woke, but he could go. He does have a sense of duty, I sense, and he could go the other way and could perhaps save save the monarchy. Is my hope anyway? Again, maybe I'm naive. And Starmer is, is worth mentioning while I was talking about Christianity and tradition, will be the first openly atheist leader of the country if he wins, which obviously the damage is already done to Christianity, but it would just be another symbol of of our decline. Sorry to the sceptical listeners who are not <laughs> conservative Christians, but this is this is what I bring to the show. So if you're happy to end it there, I'll, I'll wrap it up and I'll I'll just say to hopefully like the podcast, subscribe wherever you're listening, tell a friend about it, Go to dailyskeptic.org to donate. We rely on your donations as ever. And I'm at Nick Dixon Comic on Twitter or at Nick Dixon on Getter. Toby is at Toadmeister, of course. And unless there's anything you want to add, Toby, we'll, probably, we'll be back next week. But do you want to say anything to close? No, I think, that, I think that's fine. Okay. And I've got to go and do a gig. I'm coming out of retirement to do a one-off gig. And I think you're going to be there, aren't you, Toby? But you're going to miss me. I think I might miss you. I've got to do something else between now and then. But I've got to do GB News at 8 o'clock. As soon as I've done that, I'll be racing to the Backyard Comedy Club to try and catch the tail end of your set. Comedy Unleashed. Yeah, so, all right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week. And uh, God save the king. Mm-hmm.